All right, I have so much more uh, that I want to... Uh, okay. That I want to convey, but I'm going to move through the section fairly rapidly because I've given you something of an outline of where I want to get to. I surely want to get to some of the applications of this um, and to other portions of the resetting of mindsets. But again, it's pointless to get there without having laid the foundation because then I'm telling you things that are true but you don't know how to access those things. That's the whole strategy of this deposit. So I've talked to you about uh, faith. I've talked to you about uh, power and authority and the structure of power and authority and delegations. I've talked to you about grace as intrinsic and as practiced, as charis and propia. We've talked about hypocrisy being the pretense of uh, graceful action devoid of a character of grace. And then we've talked about the forms, the five, we're talking about the five forms in which the power of God, the sovereign power of God by which the worlds were framed, which means that that power exists outside of time and space and is singularly unaffected by any factor or feature in time and space. So you are guaranteed. This is why you have, your faith is unshakable and why the living God will always show up and why his showing up is always the perfect antidote for every and any form of the devil's actions. So we're laboring to install a different mindset in you. This is, this is, um, this is the concept of repentance, to shift your mindset. Repentance from acts that lead to death, Clearing the way for faith toward God. Elementary doctrines. We're taking it up to the next level from the original teachings on the elementary doctrines. Because this now is revealing mysteries and showing the constructs upon which we may be foundationed to engage the representation of God that has been uniquely entrusted to you and entrusted corporately to all of us so that the fullness of the stature of Christ might appear in the earth through the body of Christ. All right? So the grace of salvation, in summary, it is the transfer of citizenship from the kingdom of darkness to the Son of God and the guarantee that grace guarantees that you have overcome the legal claims of the enemy against you. So even if you're guilty, you cannot be condemned because the price has been paid and the transfer has been effectuated. Right? So, so uh, uh, the... the uh, the ability of your enemy to accuse you of anything is only effective if you consent to the accusation. 
Because even if you are guilty of the thing for which you've been accused, the price having been paid that allowed you to escape that jurisdiction, there is no long-arm statute that can now ex post facto be utilized to draw you back under that jurisdiction for judgment. Therefore, there is no condemnation possible for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. This is why it's so. I'm explaining the why. If you talk in terms of, if you use language like condemnation, that implies a judicial process that ends in a verdict of guilt and the sentence of condemnation. It's implicit in the discussion. You're employing a judicial model. Okay. We, should, we should have known these things. You know? We should have known these things. These things should always have been apparent to us. But when we shifted, and we're talking about this at the end of our break, when you shifted from an organic relationship to the living God to an institutional one, what was lost, what was lost was the spirit of revelation. Because it is impossible, impossible for the living God to have a relationship with anything or anyone except another living being. So for example, the living God can never have a relationship with a legal fiction. And all institutions are legal fictions. They've been conferred the status of personhood on an assumption of existence, not in fact on the basis of an existence. They're legal fictions. And they fall short of the grace of God because there's nothing with which the living God may impart life or engage in, in, in this transmission of revelation. When we rejected apostolic government, when the church rejecting apostolic government defaulted to institutionalism, all it could do was to protect, to protect its traditions. That's why, that is why it has fallen into the arms of uh, politics. It's the only suitor that promises power. Otherwise, you live without power in your circumstances. When you uh, betrothed to another, but you consort with with a different one, then you are said to be prostituted. I didn't make these concepts up. I'm just reporting on them. <laughs> and unless and until, unless and until people are clear, who can know what is wrong? We have had this unseemly consent of silence which has done nothing other than brutalize the people of God and confuse their understanding. And we should not be part of that. For if we, if we are, 
then we by consent are co-conspirators to this deception. We must not be. We cannot be. You know, I'll only be here for a short while yet. Because at 68, I don't have an, an expectation of a millennia of living. Someone said to me the other day, they said, I think it was Charlotte. Charlotte said, uh, Mr. Sam, she said, you're as bold as I've ever heard you. I said, girl, I'm running out of time. (laughs) The grace of maturation. Again, well, to summarize, the grace of salvation, transfer of citizenship without incident, with, without residual consequences. The kingdom of darkness has lost its jurisdiction over you and cannot accuse you if you consent to the accusation that is because of your ignorance of your status. Why would I consent to the court system of, uh, uh, of any nation where <laughs> that doesn't have jurisdiction over me. Why would I? Yeah. Juris is the word for law and diction is the word for speech. Their laws do not speak to me. It lacks jurisdiction. It lacks the right to bring me under their domain for judgment. That's what it means to be free. It doesn't mean to be lawless. It means to escape the jurisdiction with prejudice. That is, you cannot be brought back again, ever. Like double jeopardy. You've, you've been exonerated on the charge... And it's illegal to drag you back to that domain for trial. Then it would be a kidnapping charge. And and God would never consent to an illegal act as the basis of a proper judgment. There's a point at which when we understand these things, we look at the devil narrowly and say, Is this the one who makes the... Is that your case? Is that all you got? I mean, you have some evidence here? (laughs) No, I mean, we should be able to laugh at him. And you know, he flees from you. I have it on good Latin authority. Fugo, fugari, fossi, fossum, I fly. The English say that a gentleman needs not know Latin, but he must at least have forgotten it. (laughs) So then there's the grace of reconciliation, God revealing to you uh, and changing your mindset, uh, conforming, and then there's grace of confirmation, God 
making you to align to the existing standard of Christ because you're part of the corpus Christi. You're part of the body of Christ. Then the grace of maturation. Here I want to just make a few comments about the grace of maturation by way of um, explaining a scripture. And because I'll come to it again in the, in the rest of the presentation that, I, that eventually will unfold. There's a scripture that says, And as many as receive him, to them he gives the power to become sons of God. Now when we have a domesticated understanding of the scriptures, we'll, we'll, create, um, we'll create an argument where there ought be no argument. Because we think there's a controversy when indeed there is no controversy. So the controversy typically is this. Have we become the sons of God or are we only allowed to become the sons of God? And the answer is yes. Because sonship is referenced by different terms. Inasmuch as, like a human child born, grows up to maturity, and there are distinct stages of the human child growing to maturity to become a man or a woman, so there are distinct stages with you becoming a child of God. So for example, when you're born again, and the scriptures are referring to you in the state of being born again, you're referred to as napios. N-A-P-I-O-S, napios. Nappy. I think they got the term nappy uh, from that. All right? Now, you don't, you, don't, uh, you don't place responsibilities upon a, a son in, his, in nappies or a child in nappies. You feed them milk and change them often. Right? A teenager is a stage of maturation and it is analogous to the term technon or techie. But the mature son is the term weos. And in the mature son, there is an inheritance of the father. Therefore, the reference to a mature son is the reference weothesis or weothesia which is to say it's the thesis of God on exhibition in the son who is mature. The son who is mature is the thesis statement of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he in his earthly life may say, if you've seen me, You've seen my father because I am the thesis statement of who my father is. And that's the intent of God for creating man. The intent is for the invisible God to become visible. Not not as though God may be contained um, in full expression in 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 any form like the ocean 
uh, is greater than the fish can see. So God is greater than may, become, than may be put on visible display in the confines of a human form. So we have, we have to think of God without reference to form. If you think of personhood without reference to form, you are in, inherently thinking of attributes. In other words, the sea to the fish has attributes. It permits it to move around. It brings nourishment. It permits it holes and rocks in which to shelter. As far as the the fish is concerned, that's the fish's experience of the ocean. But, But in all, the ocean is much bigger than the composite of those particular features. So when we think of God, we're not to think about a space that God occupies. He's too big to be seen. In him we live and move and have our very being. He is a different kind of being than a human being. He's not a man that he should lie. But he's a spirit that fills everything in every way. Therefore, therefore, he's a living being. Knowable by his attributes. Knowable by his characteristics. Some of his characteristics we've already been talking about. One of his characteristics is power. One of his characteristics is grace. But power and grace and all of the other characteristics of God, majesty, hence the term Elohim, are motivated by the central characteristic of his nature. Everything about God is motivated by his love. His power is regulated by his love. That's why we are secure. The finest demonstration of the love of God is that he preferred another over himself while the other hated him. That's the message of the cross. That he preferred us over his manifested self, the Lord Jesus Christ, while we hated him. Which means that his benevolence is uncontrovertible because there's nothing we did to prompt him to extend that kind of mercy to us. We hated him enough to kill him for envy's sake when he appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And a new commandment I give you. Not love one another as you love yourselves. Because if you hate yourself, it's a license to hate the other. But love one another as I have loved you. 
the standard of love is the same for God as it is for man. As I have loved you. That's the operative standard. So when you come into and are assembled to the body of Christ, that's one of the standards you're going to be conformed to. The grace of confirmation exists to make you into that. And the grace of maturation is when you have become that. And he has given you the power to become the thesis of God in the mature son, the wheel thesia. As the mature son, the final grace that is extended is the grace of exact representation. Because by having become a mature son, him having made you into a mature son, and by the way, a mature son is not ambivalent. And a mature son has become mature because he was not apathetic. He paid attention to what he heard his father say in the day that the father was saying it. So today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Repent. Reposition your mindset in what God is saying today. And you will grow from glory to glory. And the final destination of that is to maturity. So it happens. It's in God to will and to do His pleasure. All that is required of you is to believe. And to believe in a timely fashion. Because if you hesitate, you provoke God. And he will say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord has spoken. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised up children and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner. The donkey knows his master's crib. But my people will not consider. Ah, sinful nation and a people laden with iniquity. I I can't find a spot on you that I haven't beaten you on before. You're black and blue. There's no soundness in your body from the tops of your heads to the soles of your feet because I've continuously, persistently tried to discipline you. And there's no soundness in you. There's not a spot on your body that I haven't beaten you on before. Like my mother would say, I'll beat the black off of you. <laughs> At that point, I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) To the rest of you, your parents would probably say, I'll beat you black and blue. all depends on if you're pitching or catching, doesn't it? (laughs) So in total exasperation, God said, I don't know what else to do with you. Come now. Come. Let's reason together. (laughs) Can we talk? (laughs) 
I have an offer for you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be as, as white as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the fat of the land. But if you're not, you will be destroyed because I swear to God, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's what is meant by, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. When he's the one speaking... I swear to God. (laughs) Oh my. Maturation. Beyond maturation is exact representation. It's the Father living in me who is doing His work. Now all this is from God. All of this that I'm describing... All of these endowments of grace are designed to produce these results in the ones whom he receives as a son. For whomever he receives as a son, he disciplines so that they might share in his glory. So that they may become majestic. As he is, so shall you be in this present world. Because that was the original intent. That you would be so shaped and conditioned again by the work of the Holy Spirit through all these progressive stages till you reach the point where he he withdraws from judging anything and commits all judgment into your hands. And presents you as my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the promise. That's the intent. Actually, that's the positioning of Christ already. So if you are in Christ, that is the inevitable direction of your own positioning. God doesn't have another offer for you. By assembling you into the Corpus Christi, conforming you to that standard, bringing forth again to you the knowledge and the understanding of what he decided to make you into before you were in your mother's womb. He didn't ask you. He made you to carry his presence in a particular unique expression of his goodness. And when he conforms you, that's what will show up in you. He doesn't care what you have to give to him. That's trash to him. The best of the things you can consider giving to God is of no value to him because you don't know him. It's like when my, my, uh, my son Nicholas was just a little fellow. Um, one day he went out into the backyard and I don't know what got into him, but he brought a handful of dandelions in for his mother. And uh, I came home, and uh, the dandelions were there, right behind her in the kitchen, in a vase, very prominent display. And I thought, huh, I've been bringing her roses. I've missed the trick. I should have gone out in the backyard. (laughs) Gotten a handful of dandelions. She'd have loved it just as much. 
Well, I made the suggestion to her that perhaps I should change to that, to that uh, activity. And her look disabused me of any notion <laughs> that that was a profitable enterprise. So I decided, well, I, I probably ought to stick with the roses. <laughs> I, I did, one time uh, I went to a funeral, and that's one of the times when she got roses. One of the opportunities you have as you get older is the opportunity to be wiser. <laughs> exact representation. That's when you're clothed with power from on high to support the purposes for which God has called you. See, I have to disabuse you of the notion that I actually sleep in a suit. <laughs> I know some of, you, some of you are inclined to think that that's what I have come to. Um, I still enjoy my grandchildren and love to have fun. Now, <clears throat> these five graces are specific dispensations, givings out of the authority and power of Christ to enable you to arrive at these results. So as you check to see where you are in the progression, do not be disheartened because every step that is greater has to be preceded by the lesser step. But keep on, because it will surely happen. And here is why it will happen. Paul prayed. Paul said to the uh, Ephesians that he was praying for them for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ that they might have three three endowments of revelation. Number one, that they might understand the hope of His calling. That they might understand and have the hope of God's calling of them. That you might have the hope of His calling. Number two, that you might have God's glorious inheritance, His glorious inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. And number three, that you might understand the working of His mighty power on behalf of those who believe. Three things. Now without the background that we have covered, these things would be elusive. Okay? Now you can see why 
we labored to establish the understanding of these things. So I want to move on now. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul speaks of us having an inheritance. Now that is to possess an inheritance of power that goes along with the status of our sonship. God's, uh, that each of us has been given an inheritance from God. We're given an inheritance because we're the heirs of God and we are the joint heirs of Christ. What he inherited, we possess because we are in him. We are not possessors of a share of it. We possess it in the same way he possesses it. Because we are his body. We didn't do anything. Nor are we related to God so independently as to allow us to have a portion of what is his. We have what he has. What he has been given because we are his body. But that has been measured out to us according to what our calling is. The word for inheritance is the word kleroma, K-L-E-R-O-M-A, a kleroma, and it means a specific allotment as a conveyance through a will, through a last will and testament of a specific grant of authority, so we may rely on it. By the way, it is from the word kleroma that we get the word clergy. So the way we use the word clergy is a gross misuse of the term. Clergy, kleroma, means those with an allotment. Those who have been given an allotment as by will. Kleroma. Clergy. Now, there were those who pretended that they had an allotment of power and authority from God to order others around. It's demonic. It's a demonic twisting of what was meant as a general condition of all the sons of God. For if you're a son, then also are you an heir. And what you get as an heir is a kleroma, an allotment. It never should have been other than otherwise than the fact that those who have been given authority understood that the purpose of being given that authority was to bring all the others into the understanding and the knowledge of their own allotments. Can you hear me? It's not going to be like it used to be anymore because these sounds are piercing the, the veils of the earth an awakening, an expectation in the heirs of God. 
you have been given. Now, the, the concept of a legal allotment means somebody chose to give you something. So it's not by works lest any man should boast. It's not by the sweat of your brow or the toil or the good intentions of your heart that you've been given an allotment because you've been given an allotment of another's estate. An allotment, a gift, is not something you work for. It's something that comes to you because of a relationship. And that relationship is uniquely the relationship of an offspring. You must be sons of God before you are the heirs of God. Galatians tells us, and if sons, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. And by the way, this comes because of the grace of adoption. The joy of God, the, the, the fact that God means to give you an inheritance, a chloroma, is described in the scriptures as his pleasure and will. His pleasure and will. And the word pleasure is the word eudokia, E-U-D-O-K-I-A, eudokia. And it means his satisfaction, his delight, his kindness, his wish, his purpose, his desire, his good pleasure. Nobody forces God to give you an inheritance. It's the overflow of his pleasure and will. And his will is the term telema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, his telema, from which we get the word telio, which means it is his choice, it is his purpose, it is his volition, it is his decree. His pleasure, because it brings him joy. When God has fun, is when he gives to his heirs. If God is having a party, you will get gifts. <laughs> That's how he parties. It's his nature, his satisfaction, his delight, his wish, his kindness. And his will, it is his choice, his purpose, his decree, his volition. And he, his pleasure and will, by the way, his pleasure and will, abound, abound, perisio. P-E-R-I-S-S-E-U-O. Perisio is one of the words for abound and it literally means to super abound. And it ties in with another word called 
Hupa Hyperbalo, H-Y-P-E-R-B-A-L-L-O, Hyperbalo. And it's an interesting term, this, this one, Hyperbalo. It means to throw beyond, to throw beyond. Now, in Greek games, uh, Greek athletics were very central to Greek culture. And the great heroes of Greece were known for their athletic abilities, to hurl the discus, to throw the javelin, to put the shot. And the greatest of the heroes set the mark for the throw. God's kindness super bollows. It's hurled beyond those boundaries. As far as you think the mightiest put of a shot could be, or the, the, the throwing of the javelin, or the hurling of the discus, as far as the heroes could throw, God super bollows. He throws beyond. You think he wants to tell us something? <laughs> he throws beyond. <laughs> it's related to the word pronesis, P-H-R-O-N-E-S-I-S, pronesis, which means it, he intentionally, intellectually decided to do that because it was his moral insight to do it that way. And it's informed by his wisdom and his prudence. I wanted us to play around with these words a little bit so that you get a picture of the inside of what these words are about. When God chose to give you an inheritance, He did not grudgingly give you a piece of coal, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in the vernacular of, of Scrooge. He didn't just sort of squeeze out the barest morsel that will keep body and soul together. No, it superbounds. He throws beyond. And it's intentioned in the careful, wise counsel of God consistent with his intellectual frame. He intended to do this without being prompted. In fact, he did this while we yet hated him. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I hope you get the idea that the sons of God is a big deal You're not orphans stranded on the island of your own accomplishments. No. You're not at Mount Zion. Uh, you're, not, uh, you're not at Mount Sinai. You're at Mount Zion. You're at the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. You're at a different table. You're at the table of a father. Not at the table of a plunderer. Now, I use the word huyothesia to refer to the mature son because the mature son 
is actually the one who inherits. The word inheritance goes with the word adoption. We are adopted as sons and given an inheritance in that position of adoption. Now the word adoption, the word adoption is the word huiothesia. And it means the placing of a son. The placing of a son. It doesn't, it doesn't mean just being a son. It means the son who is positioned as the heir. Now, all of the sons of God inherit. But the revealing, the release to you of your inheritance comes when you're ready to handle it. Otherwise, you're giving wealth to children. And that always spoils the children. So before you give the wealth of the kingdom to a son, he has to learn obedience by the things he suffered. What is he learning? He's learning the culture that goes with the privilege of his status as a son. Otherwise, you're just teaching him to be reckless. Because we're sons of God for the purpose of carrying the glory of God. There is no other thing worthwhile in life. We're not designed to be mere consumers. We're designed to be revealed with Him. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall appear with Him in glory, in the glory of His appearing as the mature Son. Okay? So there's a positioning of the mature Son. It's like this. Uh, Julius Caesar had a son by Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. It was his only heir of his body. But he knew that the Romans would never accept on the throne of Rome the son from an inferior kingdom. And it would surely have sparked a revolt against the legacy and dynasty of Julius Caesar. So, he adopted his sister's son, Octavian, and positioned him as his heir. The word adoption is not about a little kid, a baby, being brought home from the hospital, an orphan child from an, from an orphanage, adopted into a family. That's not the biblical concept of adoption. The biblical concept of adoption is among those who are capable, you position someone as the one to represent you in the future. That's the biblical concept of adoption. So God positions the mature son 
to represent Him. This is not about going to heaven when you die. This is about image and likeness. The very thing for which He made man. So allow me to talk for a moment about two concepts that relate to image and likeness. One is the term character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-U-R. It occurs in, uh, in the book of, uh, of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. For the Son is the radiance of His Father's glory and the exact representation of His Father's being. Now the word exact representation is the word image. There are two words for image in the Greek. One is the term icon, I-K-O-N, and we even talk about icons on computers. And the other is the term character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-U-R. Now icon, I-K-O-N, icon is something that you can create as, as an artistic expression. And you think of creating images of representation that are iconic. They are your creations. But when God, when God refers to us being in the image and likeness of the Son of God, He uses the term character. Now the word character refers to an engraving tool. An engraving tool. It may also refer to an engraving, the result of the engraving tool, but this is more like a dye, a dye into which you pour metal to be stamped into coinage. Okay? In the ancient world, they would pour silver or gold into a dye, into a mold, under pressure the image and superscription of the reigning monarch or king would be stamped into the precious metal and that would represent the economy of that kingdom. That stamping process to impart the image and likeness of the reigning figure of that kingdom is the term character. So when Jesus was asked, should we pay taxes? He said to them, show me a coin. And he asked, whose image and superscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. So he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. So when God shapes your character, He will put you in the mold and squeeze you. <laughs> Until then, you're just metal. But when He gets through squeezing you, you're stamped with His image.
and likeness. Right? Now, what you want is metal that has been sufficiently refined where the alloys have been removed so that it is soft enough to be stamped but strong enough to retain its shape. So that's why a Krugerrand is said to be 99.99% pure gold. You don't make jewelry with 99.99% pure gold. It's too soft. You make coinage with pure gold, pure silver. Because when you put the gold or the silver in the, metal, in the mold, if it's not fully refined and you press it, it will shatter. And you have to take it out and recast it for some other usage. That term is the term reprobate. Reprobate. It's the Greek word adakemos. A-D-O-K-E-M-O-S. It means reprobate. It means it cannot be stamped. It is not able to be impressed with the economy of the kingdom because it is unable to carry the character of the king. Adokemos. Adokemos. A-D-O-K-E-M-O-S. It's the word reprobate. Paul said... Paul said, it is necessary if I preach the gospel that I live by it lest I myself become a castaway. And the word for castaway is adokemos, reprobate. Now, in the word reprobate is the word probate. Reprobate in the word adokemos is the word dokemos. Dokemos means pleasure and will. But adokemos means unsuitable to carry the pleasure and will of God. It lacks the appropriate refinement. It has resisted the efforts of God to make it into what he desired that it should be. So it is cast away. It is only useful for something else. Now we encounter the word reprobate in another context. In Romans 1.20. Excuse me, Romans one twenty-eight, where it speaks of people who choose not to retain God in their knowledge. 
choose, Romans 1.28, for they chose not to retain God in their knowledge. Therefore God gave them over to a adokemos, a reprobate mind, a mind unsuitable for the impartation of wisdom and revelation. What happens to a person whose mind is unsuitable to receive and to carry the impartation of wisdom and revelation? It becomes darkened. So the scriptures say, for their foolish hearts were darkened. And they chose to worship the creation in the place of the creator. Even though the creation itself spoke and speaks elegantly of the nature of his creation, of his, of his creator, of its creator. Because the scriptures say, for the invisible God may be clearly seen, being understood by what has been created. His eternal power and Godhead may be clearly seen by what has been created. But you can't see it if your mind is reprobate. And your mind is reprobate when you choose not to retain God as the foundation of your thesis for life. So God reboots men's understandings by offering the thesis of God in the mature son, the huiothesia. We are the perfect antidote for the adokemos mind for the mind that has been reduced to darkness. If you're going to reboot the understanding of those who have ended up in darkness because they chose not to retain God in their knowledge, you present to them the thesis of God as the mature son. You see? This is the plan. We are the gospel incarnate. Amen. We do not just say what is true. We are the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no possibility of our gospel being effective apart from the lives that are themselves the thesis of this gospel. That's what we inherit from God. An allotment. A clerical allotment. An allotment as clergy. From God, of grace, to be carried in the refined form of a person who has been disciplined by the Lord because when you've been disciplined by the Lord and been refined by His fire, you've been stamped with His image and your spendable coin to produce the economy of the kingdom of heaven. 
You are the wealth of the kingdom. You are God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And he's generous with spending your lives <laughs> to bring others in. We always ask God, you know, in fits of religious fervor, use me. And then we complain when others use us. <laughs> oh, you're the only available coinage to enrich the lives of many. Now, the word, uh, as I said, the word adokemos uh, involves the word dokemos. Reprobate involves the word probate. And probate is what you do to a will. Now, there are legal requirements by which a will, the last will and testament of a deceased person, is admitted to probate, which means that the court agrees that this is a proper statement of the intentions of the deceased in the absence of the deceased, obviously, being able to testify as to his own will. So the writing that he or she leaves behind has to meet a sufficient test so that a fair and just uh, judge may admit that this is, the, this is certifiably the intent of the decedent concerning the distribution of his or her estate. Typically, in American law, and I suspect it's probably the same here in the Republic of South Africa and in most democracies around the world, your will has to meet certain tests. One of the tests is that the document has to be signed by you. Another is that your signing it must be in the presence of at least two witnesses who are present together and are at least in the line of sight where they could see you signing. And then the third is that a, a notary public, someone who is well-known um, to be, to be a, a well-known figure in society. Usually a notary public has to have a registered uh, profile and given a stamp. So a notary public signs a document, an affidavit, indicating that both witnesses were present and the notary was present and the person signed a document in the presence of uh, both witnesses. And that these witnesses who now are, may, may yet be alive, those witnesses are known to the notary public. Right? All of these are the precautions that are taken to ensure that your statement is not presented or, or the distribution of your estate is not done according to a fraudulent instrument an instrument fraudulently constructed. 
So probating a will, giving force to a will as if it is your statement is, uh, requires the testament or testimony, at least in written form, of people who had no obvious interest except in saying that you actually were of sound mind and intended to do that and they saw you sign it. Adokemos implies that you do not meet the standard as an heir of God. You are reprobate. You present a false document that is not given the authority of the heavenly jurisdiction. You cannot act for God. The alternative is the thesis of God. You are our epistles known and read of all men. You are the authentic indication of this invisible standard. The heavenly standard is brought into earthly manifestation in your person because you bear the stamp you bear the seal, you bear the signature of the one that you claim to represent. You are the real thing. God will never allow you to be embarrassed or ashamed. So, we are the hope then of His calling. Hope in that regard, the word elpis, E-L-P-I-S, hope, we are the hope of his calling, means we are the favorable and confident expression of who God is. We have the favorable and confident expectation of God meeting up to the standards that he has already established. Hope of his calling. As I said now, the three things. The three things Paul prayed for. Number one, the hope of his calling. That you might be apprised of the hope of God's calling of you. So his hope, his elpis, that you might understand God's favorable and that you might understand and have favorable and confident expectation that God will meet the promises that he has made to you. That's your hope. What is the chance that somehow being properly positioned like this as we've been saying, what is the chance that you'll be disappointed in God? That he won't show up? I'll tell you what the odds are heaven and earth would pass away. <laughs> I have that on good authority. Heaven and earth would pass away before what he has told you will not happen. 
So you may have favorable and confident expectation. In uh, in First Peter chapter three verse five, chapter First Peter chapter one verses three through five says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. And so on. Now all of a sudden, having understood such things as inheritance, coming to the mature son that's incorruptible. It cannot be hijacked. It's undefiled because it comes from God. It's not a serpent given as a fish or bread, a stone given as bread. It's undefiled and it does not fade away and it's reserved for you to come out of the heavens into you when you are ready for it. You who, through, who have been given this abundant mercy and this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm doing, obviously I'm not going through all the scripture verses to support everything I'm saying. I've simply extracted the principles and I'm telling you. But occasionally I want to drop back down into the actual scripture. When you see it, it blows up in your face. <laughs> because now you know what that means. Hmm? Uh, I want to just give you some scriptures very quickly on the hope of your calling. Uh, the word calling is the word klesis, K-L-E-S-I-S. And it refers to the nature and destiny, your, the nature and destiny of God's original intent for you. Klesis, K-L-E-S-I-S. You might want to write down certain passages that are descriptors of this calling. Philippians 3.14 refers to it as a high calling. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 11 and 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 refers to it as your calling. 2 Timothy 1 9 refers to it as a holy calling. And Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 refers to it as a heavenly calling. For those of you making notes, the Adokemos piece is referenced in Romans 128. 
And Paul spoke of himself being a castaway in 1 Corinthians 9.27. So I want to uh, reset what we're talking about. The three things Paul said, uh, he wanted us to, to, he wanted the Ephesians to become fully aware of. Number one was the hope of his calling. Number two was the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And number three was the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Again, the hope of your calling before you were in your mother's womb. And indeed, before the earth was created, God established the manner in which he would be seen in the earth and you're a shareholder by way of inheritance of this grace. Paul wants us to lay hold of these things because hope is like an anchor for the soul. It's firm and it's secure because it comes to us and it steadies us in our biological life, in our bios, And it steadies us in the life of our soul, suke, because that hope, you see, does not come from creation. It's a hope that is anchored beyond the veil. It is in the mind of God. And it is guaranteed by the integrity of the person of the Most High God. So it cannot shift with the winds of time and change. You who are born from above are living in an an eternal reality in time. But do not make the mistake of thinking that an eternal reality is another reality other than the one you live in in time. And, and, And the reason that that is so is this. In the three realms of existence we spoke about, bios and the biosphere, suke and the mind, the, 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 the life of the soul, and zoe, the life that is of the eternal in time. Okay. That is the greatest expression of life, zoe. And it automatically overshadows and consumes the two lesser forms of life. So we don't have to get out of this present existence to get into that life. Okay? The lesser of anything, the lesser of anything is always subsumed in the greater. The lesser is a component of the greater. So wherever you find the greater, the lesser will actually find its appropriate relevance. It's only when you don't find that, when you don't have the greater that the lesser dominates. So we've always thought, you see, that we've got to get out of our biosphere and out of our suke in order to have eternal life 
so we have eternal life in the sweet by and by. That's rubbish. It's rubbish. You have eternal life now because the life of God is contained within your spirit. That's why when you're born again, you cry, Father, Father, because you're born no longer just of the flesh. You're still born of the flesh. But you now, being born of the Spirit, have a life that is greater than the flesh. So you do not owe an an, an allegiance to the flesh. I read that somewhere. (laughs) It's not wrong to be born of the flesh. In fact, as long as you're in this life, it's testament to the fact that you were born in the flesh. You were born of the flesh. When you're born again, you've accessed a life greater than the life of your flesh. And it defines you to the point where your your allegiance is no longer to the flesh, but to the spirit. So you're not, in, you're not supposed to be dictated in your fleshly life by the demands of the flesh. Well, that has to mean, it has to mean that the life of the eternal is fully able to supply everything relevant to the flesh, but in a fashion that alleviates you from the burden of living and being uh, being identified purely by the flesh. That happens because you have a changed mindset. And the greater mindset interprets all of your circumstances consistent with that greater mindset. Now that's what Jesus came to put on display for us. He was in a boat in a storm. And he was sleeping. And his disciples thought they needed to wake him up. Because he was not aware of the peril that he was in. So they thought. In fact, he said, you know, when people panic, they do stupid things. They woke him up and said, Carest thou not that we perish? (laughs) In other words, you don't care that we're, that we're dying? Like if he wasn't going to be dying with them. <laughs> the same drowning, the same occasion of drowning that would attend the many would attend the one. But they acted, you don't care we're going to drown. Uh, Sheba was telling a story this morning of traveling in airplanes and turbulence early in her life. And... Uh, um, you know, being appropriately frightened. But then she noted that Santosh was sleeping. He was completely relaxed. And she said, well, if he can do that, I can do that too. (laughs) The greater life determines your behavior in the lesser expressions of life. Eternal life, eternal life is practical and applicable to your human circumstances. I'm going to stop here 
Uh, I want to continue on by uh, talking about the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And then I'll speak about the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then I'll start to apply the things you have learned about your sonship to your father to two specific set pieces of application. Number one will be the reinterpretation of the armor of God, which you well know is how God means for you to apply these truths to overcoming your enemy's opposition to you being who you are in this world. And the second application will perhaps, it depends on how much time we have, I will try to, I will try to handle the second application as nearly um, a clinical I hesitate to use that word because I I don't think there will be the practical uh, applications as in a clinic. But I want to show you how the enemy takes advantage of the mindsets of the soul to, to hobble you, to tie you down to where you want to believe in these things but he keeps reminding you of things that make it feel like uh, it's impossible for you to access those things. I want to end by giving you just one quick example of that. There's this fellow who came... Now, in giving an example, I'm not giving a teaching. I'm giving you a sampling of the kinds of problems that can be routinely overcome by the application of these truths to to human circumstances. Okay? Because I I believe that our teaching and our our preaching should have the, the effect of practical liberating of people. Okay? So no one can doubt that we are in and have been experiencing a tremendous download of revelation. But I'm certain that there's now an imperative in the earth to lead the way in showing the practical applications of these things so that those who have already attained a level of maturity may break through the ceilings and come to another allotment of their inheritance, that they might become all the more effectively the huiothesia of God, God's thesis statement in the earth. So I had this fellow who uh, came to see me. Um, By the way, I've spent nearly two and a half years, the last two and a half years, um, dealing in in this area. I didn't intend to do this. Um, In fact, it came on me rather suddenly and and I was well into it before it occurred to me that I was doing this. Because prior to this, I was traveling all over 
doing, you know, teachings and, and the like. And this is, this is not something that I intended to do. It just sort of snuck up on me. And 70 examples later, I asked the Lord, what are you doing? This is taking up an enormous amount of my time, but you've made room for it to happen, so I'll go with it, but I at least would like to know what, what this is about. And he said to me, I'm preparing the bride for display. So I rested in that and continued on, and 150 examples later, I'm looking around and seeing a household that is thriving, is thriving, full of life, people actually overcoming blockages to their growth and advancement in the kingdom. And I thought, well, Lord, this is more the work the saints do. I didn't think I was too good to do that, but it, you know, I was asking the Lord questions that were quite relevant to me. I wanted to be sure that I was not um, being distracted. And he said, no, the apostles are always supposed to lead in these things. You lead in the practical applications of the things of God. So you do it and it'll catch fire in your domain. And it'll ignite in other domains as well. And so that's, I kept on doing it and I, I saw that all the leadership within our house had picked it up. And I was getting stories from all over the, the, the house of people being healed and restored. And, and these are mature people. These aren't, almost no one involved was a new convert or recent convert. All were old, older people, mature people, people of substance, people who aren't going back no matter what, but were living in kind of a half-life, living in a, an unfocused way, things that were troubling to them and uh, things that didn't seem to be able to overcome, and crafts that the enemy was employing against them to just minimize them. And all of, I mean, I, I've seen dramatic, dramatic turns around in so many people. Some, I've actually seen some miraculous happenings as well. So these things that we're talking about are designed to overcome the devil. To overcome his access to your soul in which he has planted uh, uh, he's planted it's like um, landmines. And he triggers the landmines by memories of things that you don't even know how to connect the memory, you don't know how to connect your present experiences to those things. And yet they totally govern how you feel in the present. 
So uh, I want to get to that.